how does neurology and men's work connect? Well, we're going to talk about that today. Stay tuned. Hello and welcome to Men on Point, a Victories podcast. I'm your guide and host, DJ Paris, and we are thrilled that you're here. Now, in just a moment, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. John Kachoris, a board-certified neurologist who has been through Victories programs to get his thoughts on how science, support, and deep men's work intersect. Now, if you're new to the show, please visit victoriesformen.org. We have many programs for men to consider attending, both in-person and virtual. Also, several times throughout every week, we have drop-in virtual campfires, which are support sessions you can attend, whether you're new to Victories or not, at no cost. Again, check out victoriesformen.org for all of our events. And now, on to my conversation with Dr. John Kachoris. Okay, today on the show, our guest is Dr. John Kachouris. Let me tell you more about John. Now, John is a neurologist and neurointensivist living in Cincinnati, Ohio, where he has four wonderful and brilliant daughters ranging in ages from 12 to 23 years old. He's originally from Evanston, Illinois, where his parents both still reside. His brother and sister live in the neighboring suburbs with their spouses and amazing boys. John makes his way up to Chicago to visit as often as he can. John completed the Victory's Breakthrough Weekend in October 2015 and subsequently did the staff training and has staffed several uh, Breakthrough Weekends since. Most recently, he just completed the Shadow Weekend, another Victory's program, uh, uh, just a month ago. And so we are super excited to talk to uh, John. By the way, John, if if you're looking for a neurologist in the Cincinnati area, John is at River Hills Neuroscience. We will have a link to that in the show notes. You can learn more about John and his practice. John, welcome to the show. Thank you, DJ. It's great to be here. I'm really excited. I'm really excited to to chat with you. I, I remember when I went through my breakthrough, or sorry, my shadow weekend, and uh, I remember that that experience was was very different for me than the breakthrough weekend, which oftentimes is someone's first introduction into victories. Now we should also mention too that John John's father, Paul Kachoris, is one of the uh, one of the most probably important people in victories history. He uh, lives, eats, and breathes victories. He's been present in the organization almost since day one or within the first few years, he became very involved and is still actively involved in, in his, uh, in his later ages. And I actually get to work with your dad on the marketing committee. So I am very excited to chat with you. And, um, but let's, let's start with how you got uh, acclimated or or introduced to victories. I suspect it was through your, your father, but, but I'm not sure. So tell us more about that. Yeah. Um, definitely was through my dad. Um, and you know, in a in a very kind of um, roundabout way, right? It was not about um, I, when I was growing up, right? So it was pretty much when I was later part of high school and and then went off to college. 
is when dad got really involved in all of this. So it was interesting. I, I would come home on, on breaks. Like I remember my first, I left for college and my dad was, you know, clean shaven or a suit and tie to work every day. And um, I come home at Christmas break and he's got a beard, his hair's growing out. He's wearing like, you know, funkier clothes. And I'm like, whoa, what's going on here? So, you know, and he at that time started to talk about all of the work that he was doing and, and what Victories was. Um, and so I just knew it just became part of my relationship with him, right? He had been doing all this work and I was seeing changes in the man that he uh, that he was, had been, um, certainly all for the better. And, um, and, you know, that just was, that was just dad, right? So all those years after college and, and through medical school and, um, and even before medical school, I was a, a paramedic in Chicago and, uh, I didn't start medical school till I was 29. And anyway, all through those years, he was, um, it, that was just dad. So as I got older, um, and sort of, I guess, by osmosis, just knowing the work that he was doing uh, and then knowing what the programs were. And um, and I remember, again, much earlier, um, him and Kevin Fitzpatrick working on developing the Shadow Weekend. Uh, I didn't really know what they were doing, but I knew what was going on. Um, anyway, so I was just exposed to this, you know, for my whole, pretty much my entire adult life, at least. And so... Then as you know, and like I, as you said, I didn't do the breakthrough week until 2015. And a big spark for that was um, being here in Cincinnati, which I moved down here um, to marry my now ex-wife. Um, and we had children and I was down here and it was about that time when, when my ex-wife Kelly and I were really having a lot of hardship. And it was sort of like divorce was looming, you know, and um, and despite, in addition to going to just, you know, some one-on-one -on -one therapy, um, I really, again, not without any direct pressure from my dad, I certainly though had it in my head, like this type of work, uh, especially as I'm getting, it was getting, you know, much older um, because I was, you know, turning 45 that, at that year. And um, so some of that midlife crisis sort of stereotypical stuff too. Um, I figured this has got to be, um, this will be helpful. And, and you know, as they say, the rest is history. I mean, it was extraordinarily helpful. Uh, but that's, that was pretty much my exposure. It was there in the background all my life, more or less, until all of a sudden I really realized that I needed it. I'm curious, and I know this is about you and, and not your father, but you, had, you did mention that when he started to get actively involved with with victories you started to notice changes in him all for the better you said are all for the positive um were you sort of seeking that same what were you seeking when when you came because we we should mention too that you're you're in cincinnati at this time which means you have to travel back to chicago uh because at that time there were no virtual programming it was all in person we we still have in person programming now and virtual programming as well but for men who don't live nearby in the Chicago area, it, it it's an extra step. Now, obviously, you're from here, so you have family here, et cetera. But it you have four daughters. You're a busy guy. You're you're a, a practicing physician. Um, and then spent finding time to come back here to do that weekend is um, is is something we wish more men would do. 
certainly a, a huge. Um, yeah, I mean, especially um, back then when I did the Breakthrough Weekend, you're right, I had plenty of reasons to be coming up to Chicago anyway. And certainly as I was going through my divorce and sent from my Breakthrough Weekend onward, um, when the divorce actually kind of happened and got uh, finalized, I um, um, had even more reasons to want to be in Chicago, um, be home. Um, and so, you know, that did, that did make it a little bit more easy for me to, um, you know, make that happen, but it did. I mean, it obviously involved me having to, um, you know, use vacation time to, and reschedule patients, you know, all those kinds of things in order to be able to make the, the time to come up there. Um, so I guess though, and more to, to your point, I think is that I, um, what I was hoping to get from it, um, and I guess it's a good question for me to think more about is, did I actually get what I was expecting out of it? Because I certainly got a lot out of it. Um, but what I was hoping was just more, not so much any sort of solution, like how to fix my marriage or anything like that, but um, more so how to, I guess, process what was happening and, and, to have a little bit better sense of, I want to say, you know, how did I get into this position? And I don't mean like the choices I made and how did I like literally make get into this position, but like, in other words, I was certainly insightful enough to know that it takes two to tango. And so whether it be just my marriage, but even my, you know, all my relationships, every, every choice I've ever made, um, what, what did I contribute to this moment in time that I wasn't even aware of? That certainly was part of what happens in one-on-one -on -one therapy, you know, but um, I knew enough about what the Breakthrough Weekend was to know that, you know, in a very, very short, intense period of time, one can really get down to the nitty gritty, you know, hence the, yeah. hence it's called the breakthrough weekend, right? Cause you, you I interpret it as that I'm making a breakthrough into uh, you know, a kind of an aha moment sort of, sort of thing. Um, and so that's what I was expecting to get. And I guess, you know, I sort of answered my own question, which is, you know, yes, that's, I think it's definitely what I, I got. I was much more aware of me, who I am, who I was, why, how, like I said, how did I get here? Um, yeah. And, you know, that was extraordinarily helpful um, in figuring out what to do next. Yeah, I think, I think there's a lot to be said for insight. Um, and also that with sort of marrying insight uh, into some sort of action, like some so the idea of understanding why I may act the way I act, where that comes from, what is the unconscious sort of motivators there or the fears or whatever the, the influencers, uh, the very, the influencing variables are. And then say, okay, I sort of have that awareness. And then it's like, now what do I do? <laughs> now what do I do that I have right. this awareness? Am I able to make other choices or am I able to at least uh, make more conscious choices about certain things? And I know for me, um, and then that for me has been a life, a lifelong learning process, but victory certainly ha helps with, with that. At least it did for me. And I know other men, this idea of just getting more aware uh, of why we are the way we are and then what we can do about it if we so choose. Right. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, that I, I that certainly sums up my my experience and my feelings about it too, which I think is why it's you know so wonderful. Well, you and and again, you you go back to Cincinnati after your breakthrough weekend, and you don't even though you know eight years later did the break or the shadow weekend, which is not uncommon at all. Um, but the idea that you didn't, you, you were active during that time. You staffed, you, you learned how to staff breakthrough. You actually then went and did that. So you weren't just, uh, Hey, I, I, I did the weekend back to, back to my, my real life. You then kept returning, um, several times to, to, to help other men who, who, uh, wanted, who wanted to go through that same, have those same experiences. What was it like moving from participant to, um, you know, to being on the team that leads the weekends? What, what was that experience for you? Well, there's certainly, it's very, it's going to be extraordinarily unique for me um, than it would be for anybody else. Um, because now that I had done the breakthrough weekend and I was sort of like in the know, right. And, and to, or like part of the club that, you know, that my dad was such a huge and is still such a huge piece of, um, you know, then I was very excited to not only get more of it for myself. I mean, that's always really been my my primary motivation. But it was also then became extraordinarily special to me to be able to experience it with him. Because obviously, on my breakthrough weekend, my father was not there. That would be that would that opens up a whole other set of dynamics. So right, he was not there. Um, but then, you know, of course, I, the first chance I got, I wanted to be able to staff. It. Um, with him, with one of his wow. weekends. And so that was my first, my first opportunity to be on the other side, so to speak, you know, the staffing side. And so there was a lot of magic to that. And I'll just go on and say that then um, one of my other experiences was being able to staff along with my brother, my younger brother has also, you know, gone through breakthrough weekend and, and staff training. And so he and myself and my dad, we all were on there, Kevin and, and my dad's last uh, weekend that they staffed. And so that was just my, and for all the other guys that were staffing that weekend too, I mean, that was just like a monumentous thing for like all of us. So that puts a whole other layer of, of specialness, I guess, to all my, my staffing, th- those two staffing experiences, but I have also staffed without, you know, my, my, my dad around. Um, anyway, so to answer your question, I mean, you know, it's also a little bit unique for me because, you know, I, you know, being a physician did not make me into the nurturing, helping, I want to heal you type of person, right? I was that way. And therefore I became a physician, right? It's, it's that's certainly the direction of things. Yeah. And, and, um, and so to be able to, um, to be able to offer that kind of support for other men, um, was, I, I mean, it, it's, it's just, it's sort of like, it's the epitome of, of healing, right? You, you know, what I do as a physician is certainly a very important kind of healing and, and people put a lot of weight and importance on that kind of healing. And I'm happy to be able to do that too. I love that. But to be honest, I feel like anybody who can heal a person um, in the way in which victories does, or at least open a man's eyes to things they they never realized or saw in that way before. Um, you know, to be a 
part of it as a participant and then as a staff member, um, I mean, it's indescribable. And it is, in my opinion, just as important as any of the healing that, you know, traditional medicine uh, can do for people that we put so much importance on. Um, you know, there's much less importance on the value of our, you know, our psychological health. And, and it's a much harder thing to treat and to heal. And so to be sort of, to bear witness to that kind of healing happening, like right in front of your eyes, right in front of my eyes is really, um, it's really astounding. And that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean, you know, that um, even someone who, who feels like they've done the breakthrough weekend and they would be interested in staffing, but feel like I don't have those kind of skills. Like I can't, I cannot provide anything like that to somebody. I'm not capable. That's not necessary. I mean, I, I, I as a staffer was not doing anything right. Other than assisting the leaders. Um, and, um, and then just having, you know, having, as we say, in you know, in, in uh, victories, you know, level four conversations, where it's really, really, like, real talk, um, just having conversations like that with, with men in a setting where it's prime for that to happen. You know, it's not like meeting someone at a bar where you have to like, build up to any kind of like, a, this is like, everybody's like, prime for this kind of talk. Um, you know, and as we also say in victories all the time, you know, every man's work is every man's work, right? So just being witness to other men going through their stuff, how much of it resonated with me, um, you know, it just brought tears to my eyes sometimes. Um, and so, yeah, it's um, it, it, anybody who has done any of the victories work and would even consider for one second staffing, absolutely do it. Absolutely. I agree. I I've only staffed once and the experience was for a breakthrough weekend and the experience I had as a, as somebody who was on the staff, not one of the, the leaders, like I was like you, I assisted the leaders being just bearing witness to other men's work was really beneficial to me. I, I, to your point about sort of one man's work is every man's work is this idea that there are most of the things I witness while men are doing their work in a breakthrough weekend in the weekend I staffed was, was not necessarily my own work to do, but there would be pieces of somebody's, maybe somebody had a poor relationship with a parent or a sibling or, you know, had some sort of, you know, trauma that had happened to them earlier or, or, or later in life and, and we're struggling with, you know, divorce, kids, work, whatever it may be, health, uh, lots of different things. And I noticed that I would oftentimes, even though I was just standing and witnessing man doing his own work, I noticed that I would start to notice some changes in myself. So I thought, boy, that's a really cool thing that, I wish maybe other men knew who went through the breakthrough weekend and then thought, I'm not, I'm not a leader. I'm not a staffer. I wasn't, I, I wasn't either. And I, I'm still really not, but I'm grateful that I had that opportunity to, to do it at least once. And I encourage anyone who just wants to continue on their own work to consider doing staffing because you will actually, you actually will arrive before participants and you will meet as a group to sort of talk about the weekend before the weekend happens. And get to work on your own stuff too, which is really very, very cool. But it, it is interesting. I'm glad you brought up the point about 
staffing being not necessarily something that um, I, again, I never had an intention of staffing a weekend. I just thought, oh, this would be a fun thing to, to go re-experience. Um, so yeah. I, I am, I agree. Ta- let's talk about it's, the shadow weekends. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, sure. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, to, again, to, to kind of ripple off what you just said, it's like doing two weekends in one because you're, you're with the staff people and you create your own little container and your own wonderful, um, uh, dynamic. And then you get to do the weekend as a as a, a more of an observer, but definitely still a participant for all the other men that are coming there for the first time. And yeah, I mean, it's just it's just such a multi layered like onion of like wonderfulness. It's 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 completely worth it. Well, I know seven thousand men have gone through the weekends. Over seven thousand men since nineteen eighty five, and it is um, I, I really am saying this to all men who who have been already been through the programs and maybe drifted a bit away from victories over the years as right. life gets in the way you move you you know family and jobs and everything changes and you don't maybe have the time or to to get back involved um and you drifted away you can come back there's all sorts of ways right. that you can do it and now virtually it's become more easier uh than it had been in the past to to come back you're in cincinnati we're talking now and uh we didn't have to drive five hours to to see each other which right. is great um so let's talk about the shadow weekend so you just came back from that i actually did the shadow weekend your father was 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 my shadow uh, one of the one of the leaders? That was many years ago, and I I have a hard time remembering a lot about the Shadow Weekend at this point. But it's fresher in your mind, and I, I, I of course we were not interested in sharing um, you know anything that's private or personal to either victories or yourself. But could you just share a little bit about what the Shadow Weekend, uh, what that experience was like for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so first off my intention was to have done the shadow weekend at least i don't know what would it have been four years ago because but that was when then COVID hit and right. they've been on hiatus until just now so um and the so i i and i i always from the time that COVID hit and i had was planning on you know wanting to do it at that time I lose I lose sight of what it was prior to COVID, where you know the what what the motivation was to to want to do this next step, other than having done staffing, and then that you know that big monumental last um, weekend with my with my dad and Kevin staffing that one, you know I again at that point really just wanted more, you know, and I knew sure I could keep on staffing breakthrough weekends, but there's so much more out there the shadow being like, you know, probably the pinnacle of it all. Um, so I, I know that that was certainly the motivation for why I ultimately wanted to do it. Um, and then of course had to wait until it was offered this year. Um, so the, um, you know, the experience was, it was fantastic. I'm trying to find, I'm trying to find words that sort of like encapsulate it a little bit better because as, as I think as people would imagine, uh, it's, it's certainly very different than what the breakthrough weekend offers. Um, you know, it's sort of like, you know, the breakthrough weekend, as I just said, you know, the words itself tell you, you know, you're, you're going, I went from a place of, of, of certainly awareness of, 
how I got here, but I was definitely feeling of a lack of awareness of how did I get here. And then I broke through, you know, with a lot of aha moments, a lot of realizations, um, and to to understand that a little bit more. So, you know, it's like the breakthrough weekend to me is going, you know, forward in this direction. And it's not to say that the shadow weekend is the opposite, that you're going backwards, but you certainly, I certainly was looking much, much, much deeper um, into, again, a different version of like, how did I get here? Like, how do I, how I handle situations, I guess, emotions, where are those coming from? Um, you know, what, uh, and, and just, it was, so it's just a completely different type of insight into myself um, that is, um, yeah, I mean, I guess that's really the best way that I can describe it. It's just a much different level of insight. It, yeah, I agree. And, and, uh, very differently structured than the breakthrough weekend from, from the way I remember it in, in a way that was felt like a, a very different experience, a very new experience. And what I, what I remember about it was going deeper into the parts of my, well, we actually, maybe I should just mention for anyone who's not familiar with the shadow weekend, you can learn more at the victories for men victories for uh, the, our website, but essentially just to give you the, to give our audience the, the, the elevator pitch about the shadow weekend, it's, it's really originated from Carl Jung's work who talked about the collective unconscious and, and different archetypes. And anyway, one of the, one of his major sort of findings was this idea of a shadow, which is these parts of ourselves that are present are there usually under the surface and oftentimes parts of us that we don't, um, want to project out into the world or even to ourselves, maybe uglier parts of ourselves, parts that we're not super proud of, or we have some shame around or embarrassment, or just it's not polite to think or act in certain ways. And so, you know, uh, we, we all have these kind of urges from time to time, these urges that seem to come out of nowhere that are, are you know, seemingly incongruent with how we want to live. Uh, but they're there. And the shadow weekend attempts to sort of, my understanding is marrying the parts of us that we disown, these sort of, uh, you know, parts that are unrecognized, uh, but are there with uh, bringing them into, out of the, out of the shadows into the light and allowing that to be an, an integrative experience so that one can doesn't have to repress or push down parts of themselves. They can actually have better control over those uh, darker parts of ourselves by acknowledging them and understanding kind of what they bring. Um, again, that's probably not as well said as as uh, as many others could say it, but you know, it's it's a very different experience. And I I was grateful that there was a structure where I could explore parts of myself that I never explored with anyone. Um, maybe myself, you know, alone, but I certainly didn't want to talk about things that I was ashamed of or embarrassed about to certainly, uh, certainly other men or, or, and, and I thought that that was, there was something very magical about being able to create safety, to be able to share things that are 
quite difficult. And of course, Breakthrough Weekend, lots of difficult sharing there as well, but a different level of sharing with the Shadow Weekend, at least in my experience. Curious uh, to get your thoughts on that. Yeah. Um, one thing that you um, brought to mind as you were just saying all that is that, um, yeah, it, it, it certainly, it certainly involves, certainly involved me looking at some of those like darker sides of myself, but what it does a really phenomenal job at doing is not just, not just making that okay. Right. To acknowledge like, I have dark thoughts. Other people have dark thoughts. Okay, fine. We're all here in a room talking about our dark thoughts, right? It's, it, it doesn't, it does not by any means focus on the, the event, right? right. Whatever it is that I felt was uh, an example of some of my darkness, um, it, it does not work to, to focus on that event, right? It, that it, that event becomes a, an internal marker for me as to how I um, how I manifested all of that, and so that the work is on where does that where did that motivation come from, and how did I respond to a moment, and and in other words, then try to bring together. Um, how I responded, where did that come from and make all of that um, understandable and acceptable and um, and then work to really marry these two sides of myself uh, going forward kind of in partnership, right? So it's definitely not, um, it is not about, it's not about um, doing kind of shame work which is, you know, some of the things that happen in, in, in like the breakthrough weekend, it's not about that. It's not about um, owning up to this bad thing that I did. That's not yeah. what it is at all. Um, and, and they do a really beautiful job of um, using one's own examples uh, for different aspects of uh, our shadow and then um, just bringing it all together um, into sort of making us one person again. It's just really remarkable. Yeah, it, it is It is remarkable and I agree. And the thing that I thought that was one of the more beneficial aspects of it was I had these parts of myself that I didn't love. Well, I'll call them imperfect parts, um, imperfect actions, imperfect thoughts like you, you were mentioning. And I didn't have a ton of understanding of where they came from. Like you were saying, what were the motivators? Why was I having a certain thought or a certain action? The action or thought itself is, as you said, isn't all that important, at least in the context of the, uh, of, of the shadow weekend, but more, right. more so to say, Hey, that's a part of you. That's a part of you that has these motivators and, and, and these uh, urges and, and inclinations to, to do things that you don't love to, or, or wish that maybe you didn't have or did, but um, by bringing that into my consciousness awareness, well, what what it what it did for me was I realized that the shadow parts of me were coming out anyway, regardless of whether I wanted them to or not. You know, uh, whatever my darker uh, urges might be, they were still there, and so I thought, okay, well, maybe by making friends with these urges, really understanding 
you know, what those darker parts of me are all about, uh, maybe it won't be as unconscious. Maybe I won't be, uh, you know, acting in certain ways that I really don't prefer, I can still have those, those, you know, we, we have dark and light within us. So I can still have that darker parts of me, but maybe by getting more in touch with it, it's not going to ruin things or, or run the show or make things worse, I guess. In, in, uh, I study a, a DBT and one of the DBT philosophies is don't make things worse. And I think by integrating with the shadow, um, it, it def, it definitely, brought things that were unconscious to my conscious mind and I was able to notice patterns and begin to in, influence change based on those patterns. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're right. Something you said there um, is that, you know, those things, that, that shadow is going to manifest itself one way or the other. Right. Um, that's how the subconscious works. Right. It's whole. And this, you know, and, and, and as you said, the shadow is based off Jung's work and Jung was a student of Freud. Right. So it's all kind of this id ego, super ego stuff. And so, you know, our subconscious is, um, you know, we're, we're going to use our consciousness to protect ourselves. Right. So we're going to use our, our subconscious is definitely going to protect ourselves. So if if something is happening to me, you know, how I respond to it. Um, is easily going to be coming from my shadow, which is trying to protect me from whatever it is I am interpreting is happening to me. Um, and so that's either going to come out constructively or unconstructively, but it's coming out one way or the other. And yeah, right. so to use the shadow weekend to be much more cognizant of how that process is happening within my own head so that I can sort of, you know, intervene, if you will, before and just be you know, as they sort of say, like the first step to solving a problem is admitting that you have one, right? So, you know, just to admit that I have this dynamic going on to try to then be conscious of it, maybe make a better choice in that moment, but certainly use it as a marker as to where I need to make other choices. I need to look at things differently. I need to do things differently and then ultimately manifest that into my, you know, new self. Yeah, I wow, perfectly said. Um, I would love to also, being that you are uh, not only a physician but specializing in in neurology, and I would like to hear your perspective on. And by the way, we we should maybe we should just define. I, I don't know that everybody listening really understands what a neurologist does, so maybe we sure. should just define what is a what is a day in the life of of, yeah. uh, of a neurologist. So, you know, a neurologist is definitely considered a specialist, right? So anybody who's doing things outside of like general medicine, general surgery, right? Those are anything um, that's more focused on one organ system, I guess is the best way to put it, is considered a specialist. And within specialties, now more so than ever, there are subspecialties, right? So as a neurologist, there are plenty of subcategories of areas of the nervous system that people will also focus on. So generally, generically, a neurologist is somebody that is working with the nervous system. In particular, we kind of divide the nervous system into two parts. We have the central nervous system, which is our brain and our spinal cord. And we have the peripheral nervous system, which is essentially all the nerves that come off of the spinal cord and go to the whole rest of our body. And so as you might imagine, there are definitely neurologists that specialize in the peripheral nervous system, for example. And we tend to call those people neuromuscular specialists because they specialize in the nervous system and how those nerves innervate or communicate with the muscles 
And there's a, so there's a whole area of expertise just related to that. Um, my personal specialty is in what we call neurointensive care, neurocritical care. So essentially, a neurointensivist primarily is focusing on, as one might imagine, all the big bad stuff that can happen primarily to the brain, but really any part of the nervous system. So think of things like big bad strokes, um, hemorrhagic strokes or bleeding strokes, um, uncontrollable seizures, head injuries, uh, trauma. Now, at the hospital where I'm at, we are not a level one trauma center. So I personally don't do a lot with what we call TBIs or traumatic brain injuries. Um, those go to the big university hospital that is a level one center, which is incidentally where I did my neurocritical care training um, right here in Cincinnati at, at UC Hospital. So, um, but, um, so that's, that's the niche that I kind of fill. Um, but prior to doing this much more specialized work, I, uh, and, and right now I'm, I'm, so I'm exclusively an inpatient neurologist, right? I only see patients in the hospital because obviously you're not going to have these kinds of patients showing up in the office. Um, but prior to, um, kind of focusing in on this for the specifically in the last couple of years, I had office hours, so I would see patients in the office, and then I would also round at the various hospitals uh, around Cincinnati here that we covered in the afternoons. And so in those cases, you know, what a general neurologist does, so kind of, again, not one of those subspecialists, but neurology in general, I would have a whole hodgepodge of types of patients, such as headaches, migraines, um, dementia, um, other kinds of movement disorders like Parkinson's disease, um, uh, things like that. Those are probably some of the big like bread and butter kind of general neurology patients. Uh, seizure patients also. Would, would, yeah. Would Alzheimer's fall into that category or do Alzheimer's yeah. usually go to? Okay. Right. So, yeah. So dementia is kind of an umbrella term. And then there are all different forms of dementia underneath that. Alzheimer's is one of them and probably the most common and the most well-known. So. Yes, all those areas I just mentioned also have subspecialists who focus on just those things. There are neurologists who are fellowship trained in just headaches. There are neurologists that are just did fellowships and are trained on just dementia or memory disorders. There are neurologists that are trained specifically in movement disorders, which Parkinson's is probably the biggest one. Um, you know, there are neurologists just focused on multiple sclerosis or other um, neuroimmunologic diseases, which multiple sclerosis is a, it's an immune system dysfunction, right? So these are like immunologists that are focused specifically on the nervous system. Um, so all of us have training in managing these patients. For me personally, if I saw somebody, for example, with Alzheimer's, um, you know, I would usually do that, making that initial diagnosis, right? See the patient, hear the story, talk to the family, do a neurologic exam, get neuropsychiatric testing done, get the scans done. And then based on what we concluded from that, if it looked like something where a subspecialist was going to be able to better serve that patient, then I would refer them on to that subspecialist. Certainly people will show up, you know, uh, for, with a subspecialist for the whole workup in the first place. But lots of times people are coming to the neurologist because they don't know what the problem is. And so then as a general neurologist, we, we get them in the right category and then send them on if they need um, more specialized care. In a big city, including Cincinnati, certainly around Chicago, 
um, you know, there are so with the university being right here and the University of Cincinnati has a very, very strong, strong neuroscience department. That's one of their claims to fame. So there are a lot of world class neurologists literally right around the corner. So if I certainly feel that somebody that I don't have enough experience or exposure to a person's particular problem, but I know there is a world-renowned subspecialist right down the street, I'm going to be referring that patient to that person, you know, very quickly because I'm doing them a disservice if I, if I try to take it on myself and I don't know what I don't know, right? I don't know what I'm missing. I don't know what else could potentially be offered. So then I refer them on. I have that advantage. There are certainly cities and towns where, you know, there might be only one neurologist. And, and in that case, if that was me, I would have to figure out how to manage that whole thing or send them far, far away, you know, for, for a really specialized um, workup. So that's the gist of, of what neurology is and, and my, my place in it. And so neurology focuses your, your, your particular uh, sort of, part in neurology is brain stem brain uh central nervous system and also victories tends to deal uh, with brain functioning in, in a different way um right. less physiological and more sort of psychological and i'm curious as a clinician and you are um you, you know you are a science person first and foremost that's that's your your training. It's 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 what you're good at. I'm curious on how you view uh, the intersection between, you know, sort of this physical job that you have, working specifically on disorders, a lot of times incurable or very difficult to treat challenges. Uh, you, we were saying before we started, I was saying, oh, I've never seen a neurologist. And John said, that's a good thing that, <laughs> right. uh, you know, it's, you want to avoid it as much as possible. Um, it's not uh, not like just, you know, getting a physical uh, once a year and finding out you're okay. If you're going to see a neurologist, things are probably not okay. And so I'm curious to, how you see the treatment that you provide again to to your patients and seeing any sort of intersection there with again victories isn't therapy it isn't treatment so to speak but there are changes that that often happen so I'm curious on how you see those two things working either together or or in uh, in opposition yeah okay so lots there um, so first there's two two things that um, come to mind so the the first is that the Sadly, you know, every every specialty in medicine has sort of like a joke about it, right? So the joke about neurology has historically been that it's the diagnose and adios specialty, right? I can tell you what's wrong, <laughs> but there's not a damn thing I can do about it. Right. That is definitely, definitely changing um, all the time. And especially in my area of neurocritical care, the things we can do for these bad brain injuries and strokes and all that stuff to either mitigate them entirely or get the person, you know, is most, if not completely recovered in lots of circumstances, is far better than it ever was. So uh, it's not quite as bad as the diagnosis and audio specialty any longer. But um, yes, but neurologic stuff is inherently very, very hard to treat in large part because I tell people if everything there was to know about the brain fit in this room, and I don't care how big or small of a room you're in, it's irrelevant. What we actually know about it would be a speck of dust on the floor. Right. So there is so much that we don't understand about the nervous system that is um, 
it makes it then obviously very hard to know like what are we supposed to do about it we don't even know it's broken in the first place um so that is part that's what makes the the specialty very difficult um the thing that again i have i don't know i'll, I'll call it an advantage that i also have in terms of at least perspective is the fact that my father is a psychiatrist so he's a psychiatrist. I'm a neurologist, right? So I always joke that we have these like mind brain conversations. I'm talking about brain. He's talking about mind. What I have come to realize, and I, 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 a lot of what I'm going to say, I've heard bits and pieces of from other physicians, other neuroscientists, other, you know, people who are experts in this field. But I feel like I've not never heard it really in the way that I, at least I consciously perceive it. And the thing is, is that, um, you know, like I said, we're talking about mind brain differences. And, and I've said, and I think actually this line is what um, helped me get me into my neurology residency because the neurologists all love this. That is that the only difference between neurology and psychiatry is the power of the microscope. Right. So hmm. if we had a microscope powerful enough, and I don't mean literally to zoom in on the cell. But my point is, like, if we had enough understanding of physiologically what is going on in the brain, then you have you have now just um, discovered what makes psychiatry psychiatry. And um, and I also would make make fun of my dad and say, you know, eventually um, neurology is going to take over psychiatry because eventually we're going to understand so much about how the brain works and how all these processes work that we're going to be able to do all the work that comes from um, you know, these rudimentary psychiatric medications that we have and even talk therapy because we're gonna know how to intervene on those processes the same way we're able to intervene on somebody who's got heart failure and we know how to improve sure. the cardiac function of the heart, right? And it's like, you don't, you know, there's, no, you know, there's no more magic to it um, because we get it. We're just not there yet. Like I said, we just the microscope's not powerful enough to really understand the psychiatric aspects of the brain, uh, which brings another another important point that I'm making too is that you know it is a it is a social construct that there's a difference between the mind and the brain, right? That there's a difference between neurologic disorders and psychiatric disorders. That is something that we as humans, because of how our brains work, ironically, need to make that separation. But at the same time, it makes absolutely no sense. It's all coming from the same organ, right? If I have Parkinson's disease, it is the same organ that is also making me depressed and suicidal, right? It is the same organ. And so obviously, if Parkinson's disease, you're not going to go to a therapist and talk it out to get out of your Parkinson's disease. No, we consider that an organic problem that therefore needs medications and all these other advanced treatments in order to improve, <coughs> excuse me, improve from or cure. There's no reason why depression and all these other psychiatric diseases are not physiologically the same idea. Now, again, sure. by no means am I trying to say that ultimately psychiatry and all those um, uh, the therapeutic types of specialties by therapy, I mean, like talk therapy are going to go away. Um, I mean, certainly not in any of our lifetimes. We are eons away from being where I'm talking about. <clears throat> but it's moving that direction. I mean, all of us, even just watching things on TV and the news and the internet and all that stuff, can see how we're moving 
in that direction. You know, the more questions we answer about how something works is exactly then how you can construct, you know, a treatment to, to address it. So with all of that said, um, the, the thing that I think how victories, how talk therapy, how all of this stuff really is working is, and this has kind of been a buzzword even in the general public uh, these days, is this term called neuroplasticity, right? So this is a neuroscience term. You know, obviously something that's plastic is, can be reshaped, molded into a new thing. And so neuroplasticity implies that it's the same sort of concept happening in the brain. And we've known this forever. Um, like for example, if somebody has a stroke and they lose the function, let's just say of their arm, you know, essentially what's happened there is that there is a blockage of blood flow to the part of the brain that controls the movement of the arm, right? My right arm is controlled by the brain on the left side of my head. And so if I have a stroke here on the left that takes out my arm, that arm is weak because the brain is not sending the signal to the arm. The arm is fine. The muscles are fine. The, when that damage occurs, it never heals. There is always a scar there. Brain cannot heal itself. You cut your skin, it can heal good as new like nothing ever happened. Brain cannot do that. And so when you, really, when you gain the function of the arm back after a stroke, one of the reasons why it can take so long, it doesn't heal as quickly as breaking a bone or cutting your skin. It can take months. It can take up to, you know, we don't say that somebody's as fully recovered from their stroke or their brain damage for at least a year. You know, if you're still not 100% at a year, then we say, you know, there is still room that you can potentially continue to improve. And the reason for that is because the good brain around the stroke, around the damaged brain is learning to do a new thing. It's learning how to use the arm. It's taking over function, right? That's like your skin turning to bone, right? It's yeah. like this, it, like organ becomes, it learns a new thing. And that does not happen anywhere but the nervous system. The problem is, is that it's not foolproof and it's not necessarily going to be 100%. And it's very, very slow. So that concept, though, is neuroplasticity, right? The, the brain is learning to do a new thing. So when we... When we learn anything, right? And this is why it's so, this is a great example, I think, of how we people, humans, have this, have this schism between the mind and the brain. Because it is makes, it, would, it, it does not boggle anybody's mind when I say that in order to learn how to read, you have to take a book and you have to have a teacher who actually helps you sound out the words. And then you have to practice and you have to keep doing it. And then you have to graduate to a higher level of reading. And it takes years, right, to learn how to read or to speak or to play basketball or to play the piano. For all of these things, you need a coach. You need a teacher. Somebody has to get you there. What's going on very basically inside the brain is that every time we learn something, we have neurons, right? That's what's doing, that's all the brain cells are called neurons and they are interconnected um, to one another through what we call synapses, right? So the synapse is sort of how one nerve communicates with the next nerve. And so when I learn something, essentially what I'm doing is I am making new synapses. I am making new connections between neurons. And a phrase we have in neuros neuroscience and neurology is that Neurons that fire together, wire together. So the more I keep firing those neurons to, into one another, then the more they become hardwired. 
And that's how I go from not being able to read to ultimately being able to read and not even have to think about it because they are now right. wired together. So that concept is pretty obvious. People are like, yeah, okay, sure, that makes sense. No surprises. There is absolutely no reason why psychologic stuff isn't the exact same process happening. In other words, if I have, um, so if I'm going to therapy, I'm seeing a therapist, as I'm talking with that person, and this has been proven difficultly, very difficultly using very fancy, you know, MRI and scanning techniques, one can see that as I am having therapy and I'm making kind of what we alluded to when we were talking about victory stuff, the breakthrough weekend and the shadow weekend. Every time I have an aha moment where I say, oh my God, I never, I never thought about it that way. I just rewired a neuron. And the more I stick with that and explore that aha moment, then I start to wire those neurons together. And that is how I get better by going to therapy because, and I need a teacher and I need a coach. That's what the therapist is, right? It would make no sense for me to say that I'm going to teach myself how to read and expect that to go very well without somebody right. actually facilitating it. It is the exact same thing for all this psychological stuff, right? And so, um, and you know, people seem to be, and that's why when people sort of like poo poo therapy, like I don't need therapy. It's like, well, okay. But if you really are doing things in your life that you don't like and want to do differently, you know, again, it's like expecting to be a concert pianist without anybody actually teaching you how to play the piano. Um, well, and, now, and that, every, every professional athlete has a coach, uh, exactly. You know, and, and there's a reason for right. it, and it's not because they don't know what they're doing. They need someone else to see the things that they can't see themselves. Right. And so the thing that, you know, what everybody does love, because I get asked this all the time, you know, at my patients and stuff for, for very, in various circumstances, you know, where I, I, you know, as I also say, there's, as you can imagine from what I've already said, there's a very fine line between neurology and psychiatry, right? It doesn't take very much to realize like, oh, this is not something a neurologist is going to be able to fix, right? So it's like, you know, the good news is you don't need a neurologist. The bad news is you need a therapist. Um, so because, you know, that is, you know, they're like, well, can you give me some medicine for that? Like, what about some, you know, Prozac or some of these medications? The thing that I tell patients, and I have my father's, you know, blessing to say this because him being a psychiatrist and any psychiatrist colleagues of mine that are listening to this, take please take no offense. But I tell people that the problem with modern day psychiatry, my dad, you know, so I'm biased because my dad would be the first one to tell you this too. The problem with modern day psychiatry is that it's become a very much a prescription specialty, right? They, psychiatrists, most psychiatrists, as you know, my dad's a dying breed in this regard don't do talk therapy, right? There is no pill in the world that is going to do everything I just described at, at, that, as that, talk, that you, you have to have the talk therapy piece, in my opinion, to go with it, right? That's yeah. like taking a pill and learning how to read. That ain't going to happen, right? Same thing. Now, when you have kids, for example, who have ADD and they can't focus to read, right? They have other things, you know, neurotransmitter wise going on that keeps them from being able to read medications can be helpful to like set the stage so that then the coach the teacher yeah. can come in and get them there 
so psychiatric medications have a, have a great role, in my opinion, as a facilitator for what you need the talk therapy for. And so psychiatry, the way, the way I think, uh, and, and please correct me, but psychiatry tends to focus, as you were saying on neurotransmitters, things like norepinephrine, um, dopamine, serotonin, the, the, the feeling neurotransmitters and getting somebody up to a, at least a base level of functioning, uh, by, by playing around with their neurotransmitters, but right. is that going to solve the, uh, trauma that they experienced from their parents who abandoned them when they were six? Probably not. Um, but it, it, right. it maybe it will help them feel less depressed as they explore what, Correct. what that trauma was. And right. As I was saying, so it sort of sets the stage to be able to do the work to start rewiring those synapses and then, you know, neurons that fire together, wire together. And now you have a new perspective, a new, you know, any anytime we've changed because of experiences or whatever, it's because we've just re, we've rewired neurons. I mean, that's what's that's what's happening. Um, there's not magic to it. It's not like, you know, like I say that the, all these sort of our mental health is not its own weird entity that's out here it's all inside the brain it's all coming from the same same organ as as we started to say in the very first place um so i actually tell i tell patients you know who are like you know i don't want to take any pills i'm like well good news i don't think that's the best route for you but i do think that you need to see a therapist and you need to start that process but of course just like it takes you know if you want to be skilled at anything it takes a lot of time an effort and it doesn't come overnight. And of course, everybody's more so than ever, probably everybody's looking for a quick fix, um, you know, and just give me a pill so I can feel better. It's like, yeah, well, that's, you're, you're not, as, as you said, that might help facilitate things to move the right direction, but that's not going to address the underlying problem. Um, and, and so that is how, as everyone probably has made the leap where I'm going with this, that is how victories works on the brain. Because, yeah, you know, DJ, you did say, I mean, this isn't supposed to substitute for therapy. It's not considered sort of like a therapeutic relationship like one has when they're doing one-on-one -on -one therapy or with any kind of a, a, a doctor or practitioner like that. But there is still that therapeutic experience that is happening. I mean, it is a therapy of it in its own sort of right where and because of the intensity Right. This isn't just sitting in a chair, you know, in a quiet office talking about stuff one on one victories, the breakthrough week, all of weekends that what it is doing is it is incorporating so many more senses into whatever the issue is that each of us, you know, goes there to, to uh, work on. And so by your, your the process really ramps up the brain and make something extraordinarily more memorable and meaningful. I mean, it's the same reason why we can look back. I can't tell you what I had for lunch yesterday, right? But I can tell you that near miss on the highway when some guy cut me off and I almost crashed, right? These things, because it becomes much more salient. I mean, our brains are, we would not be able to function as living beings, as humans, if every single thing that happened to us was so ingrained in our memory, it's like we can't, we couldn't function with that. So the salient stuff is what what sticks. Um, and so the weekend is um, that's the reason why so much can be done, so many realizations can occur in a very short amount of time, in just you know oh, that's two days essentially. 
Yeah. So you're basically saying victories helps facilitate uh, if the if the man is is engaging in in the work, of course, um, possibly new neural uh, neural pathways, new synapses, uh, new synapse chains, and possibly putting them on a, again, it's, I'm thinking of this as all learning. This is, as you sort of defined it, this is the learning process that what goes on in the brain. Is there any, is there any evidence to suggest that as people get older, their neuroplasticity uh, ability decreases? Are they able to continue to make uh, new um, neural pathways? You know, the the old, can't teach an old dog new tricks. Is that true in humans? Um, so they are able to make new pathways. The, um, as, as we, again, all know, the problem with aging is that everything gets, certainly when it comes to the nervous system, everything gets slower, right? So, I mean, you can argue that that happens in the whole entire body. Um, and so, because I get this question all the time, you know, as I was mentioning, you know, as a general neurologist, when I was seeing patients in the office, one of the questions people would come to me is like, either they would come themselves or, you know, a loved one would bring them and be like, I think I have dementia, or I think, you know, my mom has dementia. And the, the, the thing that I would work with them to sort out for myself before I could say anything about that was, was I seeing things that would be considered normal aging, or was I seeing things that would be pathologic aging, suggestive of like a neurodegenerative disease? That's what we call those kinds of things, dementias, Alzheimer's, all that stuff. So the, the, um, the thing that happens in normal aging is like I said, everything gets slower as we get older. So if we think of our memory, like a notebook, right. And anything I write down in that notebook is like, I'm writing it in my brain. I remember that. Right. And so two things have to happen then for me to remember something. A, I have to have written it down and written it down clearly in the first place. But then two, I have to be able to find it. I have to know, where did I write that, right? Exactly. So I'm flipping through the pages and be like, ah, there's that, there's that fact. And I read it and I remember it, right? That's, that's how the brain is sort of, you know, very simplistically doing, uh, working. As we get older, as I said, everything gets slower. So it takes longer to get it written down in a notebook. And it takes longer to find where did I write it, right? So later when I need to remember it, that's why, um, you know, one will see when they're talk when you're, and we all have had this experience, right? When we're talking to somebody old, we feel this need, right? That we have to slow down and we have to say it loud and we have to say it very simply. And it's not because the person is dumber than they were, you know, 50 years earlier. It's because there's a truth to that because it's like, they're not getting that written down. And certainly when you have things like, when you start to lose your sight or you start, you lose your hearing, right? That just makes that process even more difficult. But the old person with normal aging can definitely get it written down so that they can be like, oh yes, I know what you're saying, right? And they do, because they finally got it written down. Then when you ask them about, you know, like, hey, what's happening later? And they're like, what are you talking about? Um, and then you're like, remember, we talked about da, 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 da. And then they say, oh, yeah, 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 I remember now. And then they do. They can tell you everything about it. That's because that retrieval part, finding where it is on the page, takes longer. So that's normal aging. Slow to get it in, slow to get it out. And so the, but as you can see, that, that, that learning process is still able to happen. It's just slower. So yes, you know, even somebody who's old 
and doesn't have a neurodegenerative disease is able to ex do an experience like victories or therapy or um, and 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 gain just as much of it as somebody else. You know, the thing that factors in there is um, again more of a psychological thing, which is um, when it comes to you know not teaching an old dog new tricks. It's not because you can't; it's because they don't want to. Right. So motivation is a much bigger factor in why someone who's older can't learn how to use their phone because they don't really care. They don't want to. Yeah. If they wanted to, they would. Sure. They could. That's though. That's not the issue. I, you know, I, I'd like to touch on two. Thank you for that. I'd love to touch on two other things, two other topics. I'll, I'll, I'll mention one and then uh, we'll we'll move to the other one. But being that we have somebody who who uh, focuses and studied and practices uh, on, on the nervous system, I would I just want to give some practical advice to anyone listening who may not understand the power of the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system when it comes to interpersonal interactions. In other words, what, what I'm saying is, well, let's first define, I guess we should define sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems. Could, could you just give the, the basic under, uh, awareness of, of what those are and, and why they're important? Yeah. So the Sympathetic, you know, people, I think people are much more familiar with the sympathetic nervous system is, right? Because everybody knows of that fight or flight response, right? So that's the, the, in a nutshell, that's the sympathetic nervous system. So whenever our body is under stress, now primarily it was designed for phys phys physical stress, right? This is all based in sort of like, you know, Darwin and evolution and all of that stuff, which is that when I am being chased by a lion or I'm afraid there's going to be a lion, I, my fight or flight response needs to be at its utmost, right? Because as soon as I see that lion, I need to be able to get out of there or fight it, right? That's where the fight or flight thing comes from. Survival so protection this, is what we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, correct. Yeah. So when the sympathetic nervous system is activated, you know, my breathing quickens, right? My pupils get bigger. My heart rate increases. My blood pressure goes up. There's more blood going to my muscles, right? All of those things that make a lot of sense as to why they need to be like ready to go so that I can take action. The parasympathetic system on the uh, is is what we kind of nickname the feed or breed system because after I eat food, right? That's when that system gets activated to start to do the digestion. Right when and you know the breed part comes from obviously uh, sexual desire, sexual intercourse, all that, uh, and getting those those parts of our body like going. And so, yeah, I was going to say we we should mention too that during the sympathetic activation, sexuality is is uh, de-emphasized because again the body is trying to survive. Whether it's a real threat or not, the right. body is interpreting right. some stimulus as as a perceived uh threat to our own existence so it's going to conserve certain uh resources and saying well sexuality is not important right now what's important right. is we can turn that system off and we can right. turn off certain emotional systems and we can just focus right. on what are the things that i need to do to survive in this moment survive correct and you know same thing you know if i just eat a big meal but our lines chasing me it's like we can digest that later we need to right. you know take off and run this this is partially where the where the you know the old saying about like you know you need to wait an hour before you go swimming after you've eaten something because like somehow you know your body's not going to put enough 
blood to your muscles and you're going to drown because you're spending too much time like digesting your food. What, what's important to kind of understand about these two systems is that it's not, it is not a matter of, of turning one off and turning the other on, right? As one might imagine, they are both on at all times. What, what is happening is that one can override the other, right? It can increase itself so that it downplays the other and then vice versa the other way. So what people might be interested to know is that some medications that actually are, um, that are actually causing, let's just say, you know, relaxation are not necessarily activating the parasympathetic, parasympathetic nervous system. They're actually deactivating the sympathetic nervous system system a little bit so that now the parasympathetic system is unopposed to the same degree and then you get increased function there right so you can inhibit one and therefore increase the, the other or you can activate the one you're trying to activate to over override the other um, so that balance is somewhat important because um, you know so so for example then uh, when it comes to things like um, going back to the shadow weekend, for example, when, when I, when I am in a moment where all of a sudden I feel threatened in some way, and I don't mean physically, right? I don't, I'm not, I, we're not even going to talk about physical stuff. I'm just talking about emotional threat, right? I feel that somebody, somebody has said something that triggers me. What happens to me in that moment? Now, this is all, this is all, if it was conscious, we could do something about it, right? And hence, as you can see, this is why things like the Shadow Weekend are so important because if somebody says something to me that triggers me, that triggering is usually happening in my subconscious, right? right. So outside you know, of your control. I've, yeah. Correct. So I'm talking to somebody and they, they, you know, question what I said, right? And they say like, even if it's innocent, right? Because again, another thing that I think we all kind of know on some level, but this is a thing I say all the time. I say it to my, my daughters when they're having trauma with friends and stuff, you know, which is the way someone behaves towards you is not about you. It's always about them, right? right. What, what, what I'm seeing is them responding to their own internal stuff. And then that's how they're reacting to what I said. I did not do that. So same thing, right? Someone says something to me that's triggering in some level, they may ask a simple question as to like, well, why are we doing that? If my issue has revolves around questioning my own self, like, am I smart enough? Am I good enough? Right? right. My subconscious is then going to be threatened and I'm going to respond to that person in a way that is very consistent with my shadow, right? So if that way is to power, and be meek and stop talking and because, you know, and then I just acquiesce maybe, or I don't do anything or even, you know, go so far as to like, just throw it away, right? That's, that's my shadow for whatever reason that I respond that way, that's all shadow stuff. And that's what happens. If on the other hand, I respond hostily and angrily, like how dare you question me kind of an attitude. Well, that's also my shadow, right? And why that's all there is a lot about what the shadow weekend is about. But essentially in both situations, because it's still a stressor, my sympathetic nervous system is getting activated. And certainly in the, in the case of where if I respond hostily or angrily, that is definitely that sympathetic. That's a, that's a, that is a fight or flight response, right? I'm not fleeing. 
but I'm fighting. Yeah. And same thing for the person who shuts down. That's more of a version of, of, of fleeing. So, um, and, and as DJ, you had, you said yourself that when the sympathetic nervous system in particular gets activated, its whole goal is survival right now. I'm not physically threatened, right? I don't need to fight for my life, so to speak, but I am certainly fighting for my subconscious's life. I am protecting, I do not want to be threatened by whatever it is that you have said that's threatening me. And so my sympathetic system gets activated and all logic and everything goes out the window in those moments, right? Um, we talk about the, you know, the, the areas of our brain from a neuroscience perspective that are responsible for emotion like that, you know, one of the big ones is called the amygdala. And when it gets going, then it literally, I mean, it's been proven you can see it when they do scans and all these kind of tests on people. I mean, it just shuts down everything going primarily to what we call the prefrontal cortex where all of our executive function, all of our rational sort of higher level stuff. Nuance. It's just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. correct. It's just cut off. And so again, because this is an evolutionary biological thing to keep us alive, you know, back in the caveman days, they were really probably not having these sorts of types of conversations, right? They weren't getting triggered um, from an emotional stressor kind of thing to the same extent as they were from lions and tigers and bears. And, and yet evolutionarily, the brain still works the same way. And so that's why, um, you know, the most classic example is somebody who just goes totally off the handle and you don't even know what you said or why they're being that way and you're going what is wrong with that guy well that's in a very basic way that's what's happening and, that sympathetic and that's a, nervous system is taking over and that's a really important thing for people listening to to think about if you know john said something very powerful which is when your your sympathetic nervous system is is activated, uh, a good chunk of logic is, is unavailable to you. It's not that you 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 literally don't have access to certain resources, higher higher executive functioning, um, you, you know, understanding, compassion, uh, you know, forgiveness, um, the softer uh, skills that aren't necessarily related to physical survival. So if we're in a fight with a friend or uh, uh, our, our kids or our spouse, um, and our if if we're if we're if we're activated in a sympathetic our sympathetic nervous system is 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 firing, um, we it's probably not the best place to try to resolve. It's probably not the best time to try to resolve conflict that requires higher brain functioning. It's a great time if you're being chased by a lion because you now have the resources you need to hopefully survive that attack. Uh, when it's a person-to-person -person conversation that triggers you in in the uh, example you provided, the sympathetic nervous system is still firing as if the lion may be chasing us, and we now don't have the resources to uh, to, to have a more nuanced, uh, thoughtful conversation. And that's a really important thing. I just learned that. I'm 47. I just learned that like a couple of years ago, and I'm right. I'm sort of surprised they go, you know... It, if you're if you're activated, don't don't try to resolve conflict. <laughs> Just uh, right. try to get into. And there are ways to hack the parasympathetic nervous system, or, or hack isn't really the right word, but how to manually activate the parasympathetic nervous system, which would then allow you to have that more nuanced conversation. You're not under uh, as much duress. You're not under as much uh, stress to survive, whether it's your physical self or your ego. Um, you have the ability to to access. Uh, understanding, compassion, et cetera. Is that correct? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And this is where things like, you know, take a deep breath and count to 10 come from. 
you know, on our smartwatches, they have those like breathing things. You can trigger it, right? To give you a countdown, breathe in, breathe out, all that stuff. Things like, you know, that are also um, pretty hot topics. And this isn't, you know, this, this is not, there's a lot of snake oil sort of stuff when it comes to brain hacking and memory and, sure. and all this sort of stuff. But the things that are definitely proven, um, and again, are not that surprising in light of what I said about these aha moments and the teaching and the rewiring of the synapses and all that stuff is all this mindfulness stuff, gratitude journaling, just journaling in general, like all of that stuff is absolutely um, proven to make a huge difference um, when it comes to certainly what we're talking about, these like kind of shadow weekend, you know, emotional, but just even like general health and longevity um, this stuff makes the biggest difference uh, over anything that you could ever prescribe or take yeah. or, you know, even natural supplements, all that stuff. I'll just say a little aside is like things like all the all the natural supplements that are, you know, supposed to promote brain health and all of that. There is very little data that says any of that stuff really works. Certainly not enough to make a substantial difference. In other words, you're better off spending your money on a good mindfulness app or, um, or, or seeing a sleep specialist and learning how to sleep better um, because sleep is, that's another whole topic in and of itself. But sleep, yes. if I could give people one recommendation for their brain health and just their overall health is like, we all have got to sleep better. Sleep is huge when it comes to certainly anything um, brain related, for sure. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of uh, research being done now around sleep hygiene, and it's been been done. And also what's what I found to be particularly interesting, and this is a more, I think more of a psychiatry uh, thing, but perhaps neurology as well, I can say Morgan, is that there is a direct relationship between sleep apnea or sleeping disorder and memory. Because, of course, we know that when the brain doesn't get its proper sleep, uh, one of the first things that that tends to suffer is is, is short-term memory and, and potentially even long-term memory, but certainly short-term memory. And so when, when somebody just improves their sleep hygiene, it's amazing uh, what that can do to their overall well-being and their overall sense of just, um, you know, stasis yeah. of this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Right. I'll say one additional piece about sleep apnea is that sleep apnea is not just bad because of how it gives you poor sleep. Sleep apnea is actually deadly in and of itself. So anybody who has potentially has sleep apnea or thinks they have sleep apnea or been told they have sleep apnea really needs that to get evaluated because sleep apnea has been proven to be an independent risk factor for stroke. In other words, just having that and no other factors whatsoever puts you at a higher risk for things like stroke. It's also very, very hard and bad on your heart. And it can lead to something called pulmonary hypertension, which is really not treatable um, and can be deadly over time. So like sleep apnea is actually a, a medical danger in addition to how it affects your sleep and then leads to exactly what you're saying um, because of just how we how important we know sleep is, especially when it comes to sleep and the brain, because it's during sleep that a lot of the cleaning out of the brain tissue from our spinal fluid a whole area that we had no idea until recently was even going on. Um, that spinal fluid circulation while we sleep changes and it's extraordinarily important in some of the brain recovery stuff that happens from, from day to day that we need. And that accumulation of that, because that cleaning doesn't happen, 
is very detrimental to the brain over time and certainly has been associated with things like memory, you know, memory disorders, dementias and whatnot. So yeah, B- bottom line, if you if someone tells you you snore, there's a chance you may have sleep apnea and and there's other other reasons you may have sleep apnea outside right. of snoring. But if you snore, go get a sleep study. <laughs> and Yeah, uh, absolutely, they, right. I, I I did a sleep study. I had I, I as far as I knew my entire life I slept all the way through the night. I, I I fall asleep within seconds, but I was always tired. Uh, always, I was always tired, and I I would sleep eight nine hours. And when I went to a, a finally, I was dating someone who says, "I you have something going on with you sleep." I go, "No, no, no, I don't. I'm just a tired person. I sleep. I I don't." I, she goes, "No, you snore all night." And I said, "Yeah, but I don't wake up." And then it turns out uh, during my sleep study, I found out my brain was actually waking up between right. twelve and seventeen. times times an hour, my, right. my conscious mind wasn't waking up, but, but my brain was waking up and being interrupted and a complete lie. I've been on a CPAP for, for I think 10 years and it's, it's been a mm-hmm. total game changer. So I, I'm glad you brought that up. I also glad you brought up, you know, Hey, um, just, you know, taking, uh, you know, ginkgo biloba isn't, isn't necessarily going to keep our brain in, in, in top functioning. Maybe it does. I don't know. But I, as you said, very little evidence for right. a lot of these, uh, brain health supplements, but if what are the the, the uh, activities or processes that we could employ to keep our brain in a relatively healthy functioning state? Yeah. So there's a lot of you know developing data and and studies being done in this area. The the one um, a lot of the phrases that we use um, in life all the time apply to the brain and to this. So probably the biggest one I would say is if you don't use it, you lose it, right? So this is an exa- an example of this is like people who, um, you know, they're they're doing great, high functioning, cognitively doing well, and then they retire, and then yeah. they don't do anything, and then it's like amazed. We're all amazed at why after like wow, it's so amazing. Like right after they retired, it's a good thing they retired when they did because look, they were going to get dementia like two years later. It's like well, no, they probably. <laughs> If they could somehow were able to have kept working, they probably maybe they would have gotten it eventually anyway. But it, may, it would not be this profound, right? So the whole "if you don't use it, you lose it" phenomenon is huge. Um, and connected to that, certainly I'm talking about the brain, right? So it's not about like doing all the brain puzzles and all of these things. Sure, that stuff is great. But what really, and again, this shouldn't be any surprise. What really matters when it comes to the "if you don't use it, you lose it" phenomenon is people human interactions sitting around watching tv in your recliner and it's you know your your brain says well if you don't need me anymore then you know fine i'm out of here like right if you're not going to use yeah i'm not you're not going to use me then i'm done um same thing with muscles right if you you don't keep working out those muscles atrophy and you know you don't have muscles anymore so um and but those two things are very also been proven to be very interconnected the more physically active we are and the more um, intellectually active we are, then the better we will do for a longer period of time. Um, of course, this gets a lot easier said than done, right? You've got people who are, you know, children, adult children don't live near them. They've just got, you know, their spouse, spouse dies. Now they're completely alone. Or even when spouse is still alive, neither one of them is doing anything. Uh, people have physical ailments, right? It's like, I, I used to walk every day. Now my hip is bad and I can't walk. And so, you know, it just it becomes a cycle um, that's very can be very difficult to get out of. So I, I, I know that all this is a lot easier said than done. But really, 
the overall concept, if you don't use it, you lose it, is uh, is true. And also the other one that kind of goes along with that is like no pain, no gain, right? So yeah, it's like, well, you know, I'm I'm still, you know, I'm still seeing people and I read a book every now and again. It's like, well, you know, that's not essentially saying it's not enough. Like you really have to you really have to try to be as cognitively and physically active as you always were within your own limitations to really um, do the most you can for your, your brain health. I'll make one recommendation as to a resource of somebody who is really on the cutting edge of a lot of this kind of stuff. Um, and some people may know of him because he's extraordinarily popular now. His name is Andrew Huberman. H-U-B-E-R-M-A-N. And he's got a podcast and he's got a website that's uh, hubermanlab.com. He's a neuroscientist by training. Um, he's a professor at Stanford, I think it is, both in, neuro in neuroscience and ophthalmology. And I'll tell you from my own, you know, he, what he knows about neuroscience and neuro could run circles around me. I mean, and, and I definitely from my own uh, following him and listening to many of his podcasts, as well as talking to other professionals, you know, whether it be neuro neuroscience or physicians in general, um, the, the caliber at which he takes a topic and really, and really drills down into it. Um, it's, 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 he does a wonderful job. You, you, in order to really listen to him, you have to have an appreciation for science though. You don't have to know science, right? You don't have to be like a doctor to understand him at all. He's talking on a very basic level, but you really have to have an appreciation just of science in general to find, to, to really get the most out of what he's saying. But the people he interviews and the depth at which he goes, drills down into these topics is like second to none. And so, so much of what, and he's, he's got podcasts on almost everything we've talked about more or less, certainly when it comes to this brain health sort of stuff. Um, so anybody who's really interested should check out check him out if you uh, if you haven't because um, yeah he he talks a lot about um, ways to sort of uh, keep your hormone functioning working well too and they're like he I I know one of his big uh, and I haven't done this yet but one of his big suggestions is when you wake up you sort of go outside and, and you don't stare at the sun uh, with your eyes, but you sort of keep your eyes closed. You let, and I forget the science about why why that can be beneficial, but it has to do with resetting, I think, some of our hormone cycles or or it does Correct. something. You might know better right. than me, but but he has a lot of cool ideas that are uh, yeah. very um, em empirically sort of founded and right. kind of interesting to try. Yeah. And he does a lot of his, you know, he has, like I said, his website is hubermanlab.com. He has his own lab, you know, so he's doing studies himself uh, and is very well versed on other studies. You know, that one in particular, what you're talking about is that, you know, we have what we call a third eye, we call the pineal gland. And so it seems to respond to light, um, even though it's not seeing any light. So, um, and, and so how that, and then how that is stimulated will stimulate how, yeah, levels of other hormones that can be, um, yeah, so yeah, he's got, he's got talks about, and he's got a ton on sleep. So if anybody really wants to know how important sleep is, a lot of the, and he's talked to some of the world renowned experts in sleep, uh, you know, as part of his podcast. So better than any um, justice I could do to these topics in terms of how to have good brain health. Again, like I said, I do with my patients. If I, if I, 
if I know a subspecialist who can do you far more good than I can, and I'm going to refer you on, I'm kind of saying the same thing, in, uh, same thing here. I mean, he, um, it's really worth it to, to follow him. But you, we, you, you also uh, said we know for sure physical exercise is important for brain health, sleep, uh, community, uh, being in relation with others. Um, those were those were the three three things I yeah. heard from you that are that are things that are you know those are at some of our highest uh, or most basic needs is exactly, yeah. is to be in community to be uh, in a supportive community uh, hopefully and that that i think really victories does quite well and and may, maybe the best thing they do in my opinion or or one of the biggest impacts to me personally has been a sense of community and and being around like-minded people Absolutely. Uh, who are willing to to go deeper and so I, I get a lot of my community needs, my interpersonal needs met through victories. I meet with a group of men every, every other week. And, right. and you, you know, I, 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 I always thought that it was healthy for me to do that from a emotional perspective, but you're right. It's, it's, it's actually a, a physiologically good thing for me to do. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say that as well. Like, right. I think, and going also back to something we were talking about is like, especially uh, in this age of Zoom and all this stuff, you know, the number of things that Victory offers for people who are not in the air, who can't physically get together um, is fantastic. And there's no age limit on that stuff. Again, going back to what we were talking about is like, you know, just because somebody's 85 doesn't mean that they can't be just as involved. I mean, you know, my father's 85, right? So, and every and people who know him, you know, certainly see his mind is working great which both he and I are very fortunate that that's the case. But I mean, you know, anybody at any age can be involved in this sense of connectedness and community and doing this kind of work. Um, and Victories has a lot of avenues for that. And, and so you'd mentioned the no pain, no gain, um, meaning, and I, the way I interpreted that is very similar to, of course, uh, building muscle. You you have to push against resistance. It's going to be painful. That's how how the body uh, tears down muscle to rebuild. And it's it, so it's not going to be uh, pleasurable necessarily in the moment, but it's the 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 result is 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 going to be a stronger muscle. And so I, I when I heard you say about you know. If, if you don't use it, you lose it or no pain, no gain. This idea of always having passion that you're exploring something where you're learning. Is, is that, is that fair yeah. to say that if you right. constantly like your father, you know, when you said that about your father being 85, you, you know, you, you wouldn't necessarily know he was 85 based on his functioning because right. he is a very high functioning 85 year old. He's still practicing uh, medicine. Right. He, he is right. an incredibly, uh, um, and, but he is also a lifelong learner. And I'm curious um, if, if that sort of fits in with, you know, if, if you're uh, continually learning, you're, you're creating new synapses and hopefully you're exercising the brain in a way that's, that's right. good for longevity. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I, pain is a little bit of a misnomer because, you know, as long as I, I, what I kind of mean it to, to say is like, you, you got to put forth some effort, right? To say, oh, Discomfort, I read, a, I yeah. read, yeah, I read a book this month. It's like, well, you know, that's not really, that's not enough effort. Now for the people like my dad, for example, and so many other people, you know, people who do have a sense of community and passions and interests and, you know, all kinds of, um, uh, you know, friendships and relationships. And incidentally, that's another piece of data is that um, 
you know, men in particular, men who are notorious for not having really, really intimate relationships with other men, um, as we all get older, uh, the ones that do have much better statistics in terms of longevity and health and all of that. So, you know, that's another aspect of all this that is um, certainly victories can can achieve for somebody. But if we all have interest and passions and community, then it's not really painful, right? You're just continuing right. to do all the things that you yeah. just don't stop. Um, you know, that's the whole, right. if you don't use it, you lose it part. But But also like we have to put forth effort and yeah, some of it's going to be touching on things that are painful that we don't really, you know, want to look at. But it doesn't all have to be that way. I mean, just just keeping active in the things that you find interesting uh, and doing it with human beings is is huge. Uh, agreed. Great lesson for uh, those of us who who are either elderly ourselves or who are have elderly people in their lives who. Um, you know, this is a, you know, a good reminder. And again, too, when people are older, their brain functioning is, is slows. And so, you know, that's where, um, getting this information to them is, is so important and encouraging people who are older to continue on learning, uh, being around others, being, um, intimate with others, vulnerable, uh, passionate learning. All of these things are, uh, seem, this is what I'm hearing from you is, is, will do will do what we it will allow us to continue to live uh, more comfortably as we age um, because we'll have uh, more of our brain functioning at a, at a higher level um, right well John th- thank you so much for your time today we I could talk to you all day about this and <laughs> you have uh, this is your this is a Sunday for you with with four daughters I have yeah. no no siblings <laughs> so I have, or siblings I'm sorry I have no children I do have a sibling I have a sister but I just I just saw her but uh, I I don't have anything else on my plate for today you do so I wanted to uh, be be respectful of your time and and also thank you for not only your service to victories but also continuing to be a student of victories as well you just went through your shadow weekend and you've you've staffed breakthrough weekend so for anyone who maybe was was part of victories in the past went through a weekend and then sort of drifted away there's a couple of ways you can get reinvolved one is to consider staffing even if you don't have that skill victories will teach you those skills and allow you to uh, to help other men uh, there's also weekends like the shadow weekend, where if you want to go deeper and explore uh, the parts of you that you may not be as in touch with and, and to uh, to full, better integrate. Um, there's also the personal growth groups, which I believe for me is, is what I love the most about victories is that every, and I said this earlier, but every two weeks I get to uh, meet and we do this virtually now because uh, the men in my group are, are 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 older. It's harder for them to 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 get certain places, and we live in different places. But we're able to meet and have intimate, vulnerable conversations uh, every other week uh, for for several hours at a time. And it's not therapy, and it's no different than hanging out with uh, with with friends and just having deeper conversations that maybe you know we don't normally have with our friends. So you can, if even if you've drifted away and you want to get reintegrated with victories, just reach out and we can connect you with a group that, you know, may want. You can also drop in on the open circles, which are, uh, you don't have to be part of a group, which you can, we do those weekly. So you could just go to victoriesformen.org to see all the different programming options we have. If, if it's unclear and how you, you know, how 
the best way to sort of get back and integrated or to move forward with victories, just reach out. We, we'd be happy to chat with you and figure out a, a good solution. But John, thank you for, for your time. Uh, thank you for, for coming um, with this uh, with, with the insight of a clinician, um, especially, you know, a, a brain specialist, essentially, uh, I, I'm s- super interested to hear your perspective on what Victories does versus, you know, what you do in, in your clinical practice. And boy, um, what, what, a, what a wonderful um, combination uh, of, of skills that, that you have. Um, so uh, really exciting. I, I suspect your daughters are, are very, very fortunate to have a father who <laughs> understands, uh, you know, what Victories teaches, and then, of course, the science behind uh, proper brain functioning. So, um, John, thank you uh, so much. For for anyone, again, who is interested in uh, potentially seeing a, a neurologist, if you're in the Cincinnati area, we'll have John's information. You can reach out to him, and if he it wouldn't be a good fit, he certainly can find you somebody who who might be a better fit. Uh, but, John, thank you so much. We And again, consider signing up for uh, another weekend. Um, anyone out there, even, or if your first weekend breakthrough, John might even be staffing that at some point in the future. So, definitely, uh, uh, John, thank you again for all your uh, your insight and guidance. And um, we will see everybody on the next episode. Thanks, John. Absolutely. Thank you, DJ. It's really my pleasure. I, I, I loved it. Thanks.